0: Hello there, I'm Toby Haydock, and, gracious maidens, gentle lords, pray attend me while I tell my tale. Welcome to Too Much Information, which aims to tell you the who, what and when of Doctor Who, a television programme about hurtling into danger with a spring in your step and a smile on your face. Whether you're discovering the episodes for the very first time, or you know your splendid chaps from your narrated maps then you're extremely welcome to this odyssey behind the scenes which aims to go through the series one episode at a time. In this edition it's an instalment that has undergone a title transformation since last week and which probably embodies the educational style of Sidney Newman's vision of Doctor Who more than any other. So join me Toby Haydock, as I give you the who, what and when of Doctor Who, 500 Eyes, or Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. First broadcast, 7th of March 1964, at a quarter past 5pm. It starred William Hartnell as Doctor Who, William Russell as Ian Chesterton, Jacqueline Hill as Barbara Wright, and Carol Ann Ford as Susan Foreman with guest stars Mark Eden as Marco Polo and Darren Nesbitt as Tigana. It was written by John Luca Rotti, produced by Verity Lambert and directed by Boris Hussain. It was watched by 9.4 million people and the audience appreciation was 62. in the desert with no water, the doctor and his party luck out when the old man, taking refuge in the TARDIS, gathers condensation which has formed in the ship's interior and thus saves the party from succumbing to dehydration. Tigana later explains that he was beset by bandits, hence his lack of return. Arriving at the next waystation, the travellers are regaled by Pingcho's elaborately rendered Tale of the Hashashin. Tigana meets his accomplices in the Cave of 500 Eyes, where together they plan the death of Marco and the Travellers, and the theft of the TARDIS. The When 13th of January, 1964. The only non-map-related filming required for this episode, the droplets of water hitting the TARDIS console, is done today at Stage 3B at Ealing Film Studios, along with divers cutaway shots from other episodes. 16th of January 1964. As is the case for each of the first six parts of Marco Polo, the diary and map inserts featuring Mark Eden's narration are recorded today at Ealing. 10th of February 1964. Rehearsals begin for 500 Eyes at the Uxbridge Road Drill Hall. In addition to playing Ping Cho's attendant, as she has done in the previous two episodes, Indian actress Zora Sigal is asked to coach Xenia Merton in the requisite movement and performance style of Ping Cho's showpiece Tale of the Hashashin monologue. 12th of February. Carol Ann Ford has been talking to television today. And so this early in the programme's history marks the very first time that the departure of a regular cast member is covered in the press. Even though we are only three months in, the paper reports that there is obviously a danger in becoming too closely identified with a character in a television serial, particularly when that character is a child. Miss Ford recognises this, and much as she enjoys the variety which the serial offers, she will leave the cast in October, when her year's contract expires. 14th of February. It is guest star Mark Eden's 36th birthday, on the day that 500 Eyes is recorded at Studio D, Lime Grove. The cast gather in the morning at 10.30 to rehearse and run through breaking for lunch at one PM, and for tea between three forty five and four fifteen PM. During the next session, sometime between five PM and seven PM, a BBC photographer comes to take stills, including shots of William Hartnell and Xenia Merton, for publicity purposes. After the recording of the episode, lighting designer John Tries, who has not enjoyed working with Barry Newbury, and clashed with the designer over the lighting of his ceilinged sets, asks to be removed from the project, and so this becomes the last time that he, ultimately one of television's most gifted and admired lighting men, ever works on the programme, despite being at the BBC for the next couple of decades. 5th of March From today, that February photocall proves its worth as many newspapers run the picture of Hartnell and Merton in the lead-up to the broadcast of this third instalment. 7th of March 500 Eyes is broadcast at 5.15pm. It has exactly the same viewing figures and audience reaction as the previous episode, but slips down one place from 33 to 34 in the charts. More publicity for tonight has come from the Liverpool Post, who interview Carol Ann Ford. Is it difficult for a 22-year-old actress to portray a 15-year-old girl convincingly? asks reporter Adrian Blackburn. Carol Ann Ford, who is known to 10 million television viewers as Susan Foreman in the BBC's Adventure in Space and Time, Doctor Who, doesn't think so. Carol, whose adventures each Saturday excite people of more mature years as well as children, says...
1: It's no particular problem. I look very young and small anyway.
0: The article states, however, that for this adventure it has been a bit harder.
1: We have a young Burmese girl, very tiny in this series... I play one or two scenes with her and she looks about nine.
0: The article also explains that Carol's daughter is sometimes confused about her mum's double life and the actress has to explain that... Sometimes I'm Susan and mummy at the same time. Blackburn also asks, How does Carol explain the immense success of this science fiction type serial with the young set?
1: Well, one is always surprised at success, although the producers were convinced from the start that it would go down well, but I don't think they expected it so quickly. Perhaps it is a very good spot it is in, at 5.15pm on Saturdays, which has given it a wider viewing audience, with mums and dads watching as well as the children. And it seems to be written in such a way that almost everyone likes it.
0: Having filled Blackburn in about her early life and career, she hints at her desire for a change after her stint on the show.
1: Doctor Who was due to go on until October, but had much rather do theatre
0: work and films after this. She tells this Northern paper that she has a soft spot for the area, as the show has many viewers from the region.
1: And I get a lot of fan mail from them, all ages, from 6 to 60.
0: 9th of March. The BBC provides Doctor Who with some cross-publicity by featuring it on the children's popular programme Blue Peter. This time, presenter Christopher Trace shows viewers how to build a Dalek. Nothing to do with Marco Polo, but it keeps the series in the public eye. 10th of March Despite Doctor Who having quality adventures with Marco Polo right now, it's those pesky Daleks again. This time it's because the newspaper coverage today, in the Daily Mail no less, has Michael Gowers describing yesterday's Blue Peter. Gowers ends his article by telling viewers that the Daleks will be returning to the series before very long. Yeah, thanks Michael, but we happen to be doing some Wreathian historical adventuring right now, okay? 13th of March. And despite things going perfectly nicely in 13th century China, thanks, the Daily Mirror is also running news on the Daleks this week, telling readers that the metal meanies will be returning. But ugly as they are, somebody loved the Daleks. In fact, scores of viewers told the BBC that they could hardly live without them. Now producer Verity Lambert, 28, has agreed to bring the staccato-voiced space horrors back into the story later in the year. She told me last night,
1: We had no intention of doing so originally, but in view of this large demand, we have changed our minds.
0: 14th of March. The Tribune runs an article about the quality of children's television programmes today, with writer J.D.S. Howarth describing Doctor Who as Quite properly acceptable to children between six and sixty. Also today, and despite the story being a lyrical and really good historical epic, the Glasgow Herald follows suit with the other denizens of Journalismville by concentrating on what everyone really wants to know. The Daleks are coming back to TV, it informs readers. The mechanical monsters were killed off last month in the Saturday serial Doctor Who, but the BBC has had so many complaints that they will be back later in the year. The same story is run in the Daily Herald, With the additional information that. These robots were supposed to be frightening, but young viewers loved them. When the BBC liquidated the Daleks early in the serial, Doctor Who, hundreds of children wrote in to protest. Some of the letters even accused the BBC of cruelty. So now the Daleks are to be resurrected. Verity Lambert, the producer of the programme, said last night. It won't be until the autumn. New scripts have to be written to explain the comeback. The Daily Express also covers this planned return, and helpfully points out that the BBC has already got rid of two of its Daleks by giving them to Dr Bernardo's, and so we'll have to build some more. What has all this got to do with 500 eyes? Well, nothing, except that these are the stories being run in the wake of this instalment, and it's all Daleks, Daleks, Daleks. Is nobody interested in history? Well, as time will tell, not really, no. The what? The Oasis set is the same as last week's but expanded in order to accommodate the caravan which needs to arrive there this week. The earlier caravan scenes take place in the same part of the studio but its proximity to the Oasis is disguised by clever shooting. The TARDIS set appears to be very small and consists Mainly of black drapes and stock TARDIS walls, in order to pull off the tiny scene in which the Doctor wakes up to water dripping on his head and gets Susan to fetch cups in order to gather it. The console is only seen on film, the water dripping onto it. The episode begins with a reenactment of last week's cliffhanger, with Darren Nesbitt recreating his mocking call to Marco Polo in the now larger Oasis area. Some reconstructions of this story feature a portion of the previous episode's penultimate scene between Ian and Marco, but that seems to be a mistake. 500 Eyes definitely starts with Tigana at the Oasis. Marco's opening monologue originally contains the line, The poor old doctor, he's exhausted in his caravan and Susan does what she can to help him before the narration's final line, but this does not make it into the episode. The existing telesnaps show that an unscripted shot of Marco looking contemplative against the night sky is used to illustrate this monologue, at least in part, as an addition probably to the usual map and journey sequences. Between script and screen there are minor cosmetic differences in some of the dialogue between Ian, Barbara and Marco, the most notable of which is that Barbara refers to her elderly travelling companion as Doctor Who in the camera script. The Doctor's reactions to the dripping water and instructions to Susan find Hartnell playing fast and loose with the exact wording in the camera script, but the meaning is essentially the same, if with a lot of exclamations added. In the next scene, Barbara loses a line from the camera script in which she tells Ian that there is time still for Tagana to come back. When Marco asks the Doctor if the water is from the caravan, the Doctor was to say, In a manner of speaking, yes. But in the final broadcast, he talks about it not being pure water. The speech about condensation from Hartnell comes out in a slightly different order from the one written by Lucarotti. The exchange is also deliberately a bit more of a flurry of different voices, coming instead of the more straightforwardly deployed dialogue in the script, giving the scene a more realistic sense of cross-purposes. Susan's explanation to Marco is also a bit more detailed in the final version. After Barbara has tried the water... She was to say that they could now wait for Tigana, with Marco replying no, they would now go and meet him, which would then explain why they are with Tigana at the beginning of the next scene, but instead we cut straight from here to the warlord, without that dialogue being uttered. The next scene begins with a close-up of Tigana offering his dishonest explanation, and the camera pulling slowly out in order to give Eden and Hill time to join Derren Nesbitt on this part of the set, because they had the last exchange in the previous scene, and this is done as live. A quick positional change requiring 1960s TV ingenuity. A lot of Nesbitt's dialogue is not as it is in the script, with various changes here and there. He also loses his final speech of this scene, spitting out his water in disgust, rather than saying the scripted I have warned you, Kubla Khan will never see the caravan that flies, nor you in Venice. The old man's a magician. In the next scene, when talking to Ian and the Doctor, Barbara loses the line What did they do? Sit and shiver? when discussing the unlikelihood of there being bandits as Tigana claimed but she's still the one who is the most doubtful about the veracity of the Mongol warrior's story, because, frankly, she's brilliant. Ian was also to ask the Doctor his opinion, with the old man replying crabbily, He's a savage, like all the rest of them, which loses us some of the Doctor's alien loftiness but saves us from some tedious 21st century Twitter exchanges, no doubt. The scene fades before the Doctor finishes his boastful response to Polo and so Hartnell doesn't get time to tell the Traveller that he, the Doctor, has many letters after his name. In his next bit of narration, Marco was to call the desert awful but he goes for the more specific burning in the final cut. He also emphasises that he wants the key and the caravan whereas in the script he was just to say the key to the caravan. A subtle difference, but an important one. The script, by the way, refers to all the map sequences in this story as being on a parchment map, but the reality is a more modern affair, certainly in terms of the place name wording and the movement indicator line, which is all done by graphic, not quill. After this Telesini sequence, there is a brief cut to the establishment of the Tanhuang Way Station, with a crowd there gathering around the TARDIS before a fade to black and a recording break in order to get the main cast into a new set of clothes and a less bedraggled state than at the start of the episode. The crowd noises for the scene in the busy courtyard come from a BBC record, side two of BBC library number 14511. Again, the dialogue between Ian and the Doctor follows the same pattern, but there are minor differences to most of the lines as seen in the script. One of Susan's,
1: Grandfather and I share many
0: secrets is probably the only major line to go between page and screen. Before Ping Cho's story, there is some scripted dialogue with Susan checking Ping Cho is ready and arranging people's seating positions after Marco has told Barbara she will enjoy the recital. Barbara, however, is still in a mood due to her distrust of Tigana and so she declines to take the seat that Susan has offered her. All of this dialogue is removed from the final episode and it seems that any seating indications and interactions would have been done with movement and looks, not words. In an episode in which much of the dialogue is altered, chopped around or paraphrased, writer John Lucarotti will have been delighted to see that Xenia Merton is word perfect for the whole of her long monologue about Alad and his hashish tea. When Merton completes the lyrical story in one perfect take, the scripted round of applause from her onlooking co stars is, apparently, heartfelt and genuine. No acting required. This is an admirable achievement for a young actress with little television experience. In the script, when Ian asks Susan if she knows that we use the word Hashashin today, she answers correctly assassins, but in the finished version of the programme she doesn't know, and it is the teacher who supplies the pupil with the correct word, presumably to emphasise her alien nature and to give Ian a bit of knowledge and authority. After this scene, when Marco ends it by telling Susan that some of Alaeddin's followers lived in the Cave of 500 Eyes, there is a second recording break. In the exchange between Tigana, Akamat, and Malik, it is revealed that Man at Lop, from episode 1, has not returned, presumably lost in the sandstorm. Poor old Man at Lop. We didn't even get to know his name. Charles Wade as Malik decides to play his part with a slight Chinese accent, whilst Philip Voss as Akamat follows Darren Nesbitt's lead and goes for the more dignified no-accent approach, Time has been kinder to the performances of the latter two than the former, for obvious reasons. seems odd that nobody got together and decided to all play these parts in the same way. Accent or no accent, but not a mixture of both. In later scenes, Jimmy Gardner as Chenchu evens the side by going Wade's way and giving it a bit of the old Mickey Rooney's. The third scripted recording break comes after Barbara screams as she is being kidnapped. In the script, Tigana says to Marco and Ian that they will never find Barbara in Tunhuang, but between script and screen, the ominous word alive is added to give it more clout. Susan is supposed to speak aloud her desire for Barbara to be alright at the end of the scene, but clearly this hope is now conveyed with a look, which is what gives the Doctor impetus to say his line that he does say about her not worrying. There is another recording break, the episode's fourth, which is about the limit for such things really, but is necessary to give the actors time to get to the next set. After Chenchu has called after the Doctor, warning him that he will not come back alive, in a line that has now lost its reference to the Hashashin spirits walking abroad, presumably because Chenchu has, as scripted, already said that half a page before, and there's no need for him to repeat it as he does in the script. In the scene in the tunnels, Hartnell adds a line at the end when he excitedly says to Susan and Ping Cho, let's find the spirits. The scene between Tigana and Chenchu is also altered from the camera script. Chenchu's lines are shaved down a bit, but then at the end, Tigana gets to ask him which cave the travellers have gone to for an unscripted second time, which gives him momentum to get angry. Chenchu then gets to repeat plaintively that he was forced to show the travellers the requested directions which gives him a more forlorn, pathetic coda to the scene which has Tigana leaving more forcefully and angrily after sticking his knife into a loaf of bread which is not in the script. There are a couple of small changes that make Tigana more dangerous and Chenchu more craven, giving the scene a small amount of extra character dynamic. Sometime during Marco Polo, The credits of Doctor Who change from being left-justified on the roller caption to centred. The latest existing episode to have a left-justified roller caption with the cast and most of the crew, bar producer and director who get their own solo centred caption, always, is the brink of disaster. The next existing episode, The Sea of Death, part one of The Keys of Marinus, has the roller caption centred. Now, there's no real evidence of what goes on in Marco Polo. In the camera script, there are differing layouts, but they're not a clear indication of what actually happens if other scripts are anything to go by. And indeed, for this episode, the typing displays the cast list beginning with a centred Doctor Who, William Hartnell, which is contradicted by the only visual clue we have to the roller credits, which is Barry Newbry's for this episode, which is left justified. For Ryder from Shang 2, Mervyn Pinfield's credit, which would also be on the roller, on the surviving telesnap has become centred, whereas for this episode, it would have been the same as Newbury's on the left. In addition, the graphics order for Episode 7, Assassin at Peking, the only one we have, displays the cast list and credits as centrally justified. So, it's likely that at some point between this episode, 500 Eyes, and Episode 5, Rider from Shang 2, the credits jump from the left to the centre. But we have no telesnaps from The Wall of Lies next week's episode, so we don't know if this week is the last left-justified roller caption, or next week, as the evidence ends here. I may be the only person in the world who cares, but nonetheless care I do, which is why I said all that out loud. The Who CHARLES WADE Charles Roland Edward Wade, who plays Malik in this episode of Doctor Who, his only episode of Doctor Who, was born in Southwark in London in April 1901. In 1928 he married Eulali Dove and they had a daughter, also Ulali, who was born in 1930. Confusingly there is another Charles Wade working in the theatre in this period, organising and emceeing the Happy Valley Concert Party at Llandudno and appearing in panto. Now, it's possible that some of the Charles Wade panto credits at this time are our Charles Wade, but it's impossible to tell. Our Charles is certainly working at this time, as he's on screen from 1930, but he's definitely not Welsh Charles, who dies in 1966, but otherwise crosses over chronologically with our Charles rather frustratingly. So rather than attribute some incorrect stage credits, let's look at what we know, and that's mostly his screen work. He started on television in 1937 in Reginald Smith's production of Noel Coward's Red Peppers, recreating the role of Alf in the same piece for a remounted production the following year, and continued working on television until the service stopped at the outset of World War II. Post-war he was back on screen again. Playing the Dormouse in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass in 1948, and eight years later was in Wonderland again, this time as the Executioner in a production featuring Barry Letts as Lewis Carroll and Peter Hawkins as the Cat. He did the odd film, including John Gillings' 1955 The Gilded Cage, and he was on stage in 1959 at the Edinburgh Lyceum in Cockadoodle Dandy. Thereafter, he was pretty busy on television. He was in episodes of David Copperfield, Dial 999, and Probation Officer, among many 1950s TV credits. And in 1960, he was Simon the Tanner in the Patrick Troughton starring Paul of Tarsus, and appeared in Hot Snow, the very first episode of The Avengers, as Johnson. He also appeared on TV in Circle of Chalk, a Chinese story from the 13th century, in which he and Aubrey Woods played two comical Chinese coolies opposite William Russell, all of which must have put him in good stead for Marco Polo six years later. His high forehead, lidded eyes and heavy lips gave him a physiognomy fairly well suited to being altered into oriental features with the resources, available makeup and attitudes at this time, and so he carved himself a useful niche. He played a Chinese character Chu Lao in Upside Downing Street, written by Kinder's Roger Milner, Which was on at the Richmond Theatre in 1963, another string to his bow for when playing Marco Polo's tune, and after his single episode appearance in Doctor Who, it appeared he was back under makeup pretty quickly playing Dr Nakamura in Edinburgh alongside Marco Polo's Tutti Lemkow, in Happy End in August 1964. He could be seen in Dixon of Doc Green's episode Other People's Lives in 1965, and in two 1966 films The Frozen Dead and The Sandwich Man. His other film credits included In the Doghouse, The Prince and the Pauper and Greyfriars Bobby. And then we have Zed Cars, All Through the Night, Part 1 in 1967, which features the last moving images we have for him. It's a tiny, one-line part, but his diminutive frame and pinched nasally voice are there intact, fussy character-actor credentials there for all to see. And then he is gone, for he died, aged just 67, on the 14th of December 1968, making him one of the very small number of Doctor Who actors not to survive the decade of its inception. John Treys. Doctor Who was the first full lighting director engagement for John Treys, who was born on the 13th of May 1928 and who went on to become one of the foremost BBC drama lighting directors of the 1960s, 70s and 80s. He lit the first, fifth, sixth and seventh episodes of the first Dalek story and Marco Polo was his second and it turned out last engagement for the show. His beef was with designer Barry Newbury, even though the two worked together again on Doomwatch in 1970 and on The Caretaker in 1981. Waris Hussain, who later described him as a very good lighting supervisor, we were privileged to get him, if he'd done a poor job the psych at the back would have looked ghastly, he had to light it to make it look distant, worked with him again on Black and Blue in 1973 and suffragette drama Shoulder to Shoulder in 1974. Trieres was involved in lighting early experimental colour television during BBC tests, with Maureen Winslade as makeup designer. In 1974, Trias was one of a small group of lighting directors who founded the Society of Television Lighting Directors and he became the society's first chairman and appropriately held the membership number one. He was an advocate of using subtle colour in television drama and he became one of the first lighting directors to introduce coloured gel into his drama plots. His incredible post-Who credits included several episodes of The Expert, 1969's A Voyage Around My Father, a couple of 1971 Out of the Unknowns, Anne of Green Gables, 1972, Churchill's People, 1975, Poldark, 1976, and Andre Previn Meets in 1977. The same year, he lit the groundbreaking play Abigail's Party, one of his many plays for today. 1977 was a good year for him. He won a BAFTA for his lighting of the opera version of Macbeth, his only win although he was nominated on a further three occasions for The Taming of the Shrew in 1980, Cyrano de Bergerac 1985 and The Nativity also 1985. There was also to be more Shakespeare including Romeo and Juliet 1978, featuring Jacqueline Hill and directed by her husband Alvin Rakoff, Othello 1981, The Merry Wives of Windsor and King Lear both 1982. The latter two directed by Jonathan Miller and one of which may have been the occasion of an oft-told tale about the two men. During the making of a programme, Triés apparently grabbed hold of a floor lamp whilst holding on to some other metal object, possibly a boom, with the other hand, on the studio floor. The result? Main's voltage straight through the heart. Fortunately, Jonathan Miller was a fully qualified doctor and was able to revive him in order that Triers might live to light another day. He also lit two major BBC TV films of The Crucible and Juno and the Paycock* in 1980. During the mid-1980s, he went on to become one of the first ex-BBC freelance lighting directors and continued working well into the 1990s. His final major TV credit was on Alan Bennett's Talking Heads 2 in 1998. John Triers died in Plymouth at the beginning of August 2009, aged 81. And so ends another episode of Doctor Who. And as Ping Cho tells us when asked why she can't tell the Hashashin story straight away, like all good entertainment, it needs preparation. In the case of 500 Eyes, much of the prep seems to have gone into the showpiece element of that episode. Ping Cho's lyrical tale accompanied by music, mime and the charming vocal performance of Xenia Merton. It's entirely unnecessary to the plot, though it gives background to their time and place, but you wouldn't want to lose it. It's a skillfully mounted sequence, well performed and allowed by the more languid pace of 60s television, which here gives its characters time to breathe and helps to create and maintain the atmosphere of the setting. It's a strong episode for the women, actually, with Barbara ahead of the game when it comes to suspicion of the duplicitous Tigana. She knows some history and geography too, making her a central part of the unfolding plot. Really handy to have as a knowledgeable representative from our time. The depiction of the Mongols who guard Barbara as non-speaking but sadistic laughing captors probably seems a little discomforting today, othering them, depicting them as foreign devils which would not fit in to, with modern sensibilities. But it serves to emphasise something very important about the show at this time. That everything outside of the ship is alien. These threatening coves may not be from another planet, but they're as frighteningly different non-speaking, seemingly unfeeling. There's no chance of Stockholm Syndrome or cultural exchange here. This only highlights how strange and unnerving the environments the ship pitches us into are. The only sanctuary is the one shaped like a 20th century object. Despite Marco's benevolence and Pincho's kinship, this is a land of danger and of the unknown, as unknowable in places as the nooks of Scarrow and the crannies of Marinus. And the Wreathian vibe continues, with Sidney Newman's conception of Doctor Who as education via entertainment shining through as the viewers, along with Susan, learn the etymology of the word assassin, and science comes into play as things get hot and wet inside the TARDIS. Oh, and far from Barbara behaving like the drip esteemed critic Philip Purser accused her of being last week, she is the one who smells a Tigana-shaped rat and follows him to his sewer. And as the next episode caption tells us, we now go from a wall of eyes to the wall of lies. Oh, and what kind of country do you come from where a woman can wander alone through the streets at night? Doctor Who. Five Hundred Eyes. Featured Xenia Merton as Ping Cho, Jimmy Gardner as Chen Chu, Charles Wade as Malik, and Philip Voss as Akamat. The title music was by Ron Grainer and the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, the incidental music by Tristram Carey, the story editor was David Whittaker, the designer Barry Newbury, and the associate producer was Mervyn Pinfield. Coming next, the first episode that we have no idea what any of the broadcast images were like, because director Waris Hussain has a week off. So, when the telesnaps are taken, he doesn't order any of them. So, like Tigana, we will have to be eavesdroppers. That's next time on Doctor Who, Too Much Information. Next episode, The Wall of Lies. Or, it's not die, it's dice. Well, actually, it's both. Too Much Information 500 Eyes was written and presented by me, Toby Hayden. Additional voice work came courtesy of Chrissy Bone, and thanks are due to Richard Bignall, David Brunt, Peter Crocker, Simon Guerrier, Graham Kibble White, Reese Williams, and Boris Hussain. The series consultant is Richard Bignell. and the music for Too Much Information has been specially composed by Wayne Shepard. There is a supplemental podcast, one per story as opposed to per episode, far too much information, that is now exclusive for patrons who also qualify for bonus material, early releases and other exclusives, as well as pictures of my dog. Patrons are also nearly six months ahead with my Happy Times and Places podcast, so if you want to hear that wonderful Hollyoaks actress Annie Wallace getting terribly excited about Planet of the Spiders, or music maestro Jess Jerkovic singing the tunes of Fury from the Deep, then head to patreon.com forward slash Toby References. Most of the information herein, as every time with too much information, comes from going back to source and sifting through original scripts and paperwork which have been shared from various sources. You know who you are, and thank you. Patrick Mulkin wrote three of the best research articles about a particular story going into detail by poring over paperwork with its director, Warris Hussain, over three issues of Doctor Who magazine from issue 483 in 2015. Doctor Who A Complete History, edited by John Ainsworth and Mark Wright, with contributions from Jonathan Morris, Alistair McGowan and Richard Atkinson, and much of it based of course on those fantastic archives features by Andrew Pixley. Richard Bignall's Nothing at the End of the Lane is one of the best things ever and great for this period of the show. Howe, Stammers and Walker's The Sixties and The First Doctor Handbook are both excellent and uncovered, much of what we now take for granted about Sixties Doctor Who. Ditto J. Jeremy Bentham's Doctor Who The Early Years. The TARDIS wiki page and Shannon Patrick Sullivan's complete history of time travel have also been very, very valuable for quick, handy reference and I subscribe to the British newspaper archive, Ancestry.com and Newspapers.com, which are vital resources but also places that are very easy to get lost in for several days, so proceed with caution. I walk in the shadows of giants, albeit giants who sigh when they read forums but decide not to bother getting involved because, well... Too much hassle, isn't it? I would like to thank the patrons who make these podcasts possible, and they include Stephen Moffat, Joel Ahrens. Christopher Meredith, The Glory Hungry Christopher Meredith, John Rumfit, Nathan Martin, Sam Hollingsworth, John Arnold, Shanti Day, Graham Knott, Murray Robinson, Jeff Sear, Andrew Nixon, Neil Little, Phil Mitchell, Mary Ann Placati, Ben Cook, Ben Cowdell, Chris Hyam, Fanman Sang, Brian Sinclair, Paul Gibbons, Pete Lack, Andy Benison, Paul Hayes, James Curray smith Simon Curtis, Tim Arding, Kevin Clark, Scott Pride, Radit Ariza, and Nigel Brumley Paul Gregory Ian Radford Joe McLachlan Gareth Bowley David Bickley Steve O'Brien Keith Adams Ollie Barrett Andrew Jolly Aaron Gullias Chris Williams Jace Mayo Steve Cunniff Jeff Edwards Dr. Gary Thomas Michael Herbert Kevin West Chris Stokes Kevin Murdoch, Jonathan Molyneux Christopher Joyce Christopher Sharp Paul Goodridge Paul Murphy Andrew Sneddon Mark Swan David Hughes Grant Davidson Simon Barker and the Missing Episodes Doctor Who podcast. Check that one out as well. As mentioned, you can become a patron of these podcasts by going to patreon.com forward slash tobyhaydoke. For as little as £3 a month, you get bonus material, early material, exclusives monthly AMAs, and as you go up the tiers, there are other trinkets too, but most things are available at the lowest tier, which is just £3 a month, and every tier is subject to a 10% discount if you sign up for a year all in one go. That's patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydock. If you cannot quite manage to do the monthly commitment, and I totally understand that, but do occasionally want to Throw something my way. You can do that at kofi.com forward slash Toby haydoke where you can pay as much or as little as you like, and uh, it's just a one-off. Uh, you don't get any of the bonus stuff, though. I'm sorry, but you do get my uh, sincere thanks. You know those resources I mentioned, the uh, newspaper archives and the ancestries You know, I I, I pay for those, and uh, there's a, there's a bit of outlay, and of course the time as well. Uh, and I try to spend as much time as I can making these as professional sounding as possible, and. Uh, people supporting these financially enables me to sort of justify doing that to everybody in my life who goes you sure you should be spending much time on those things and I go yeah absolutely Uh, and it also justifies my decision to keep these ad free because I think they would be spoilt by having me pretending I liked something I actually don't for money, so uh, yeah, any support uh, for the financial kind is much appreciated. I am a freelance, self-employed performer, but uh, I know that times are tough, and I know that uh, a lot of our people out there are going to be feeling the pinch. And I know that you know, entertainment is is a frivolity, and I'm happy for this stuff to be out there for free. But what is free for you, if you are consuming this and enjoying it, is to just give me a little bit of your time by uh, giving this five-star reviews everywhere that you can. That really helps with the algorithms and it gets people listening. Uh, And also subscribing. I've never asked people to do that until very recently. I've just heard other podcasts doing and it sounds very exciting. So subscribe. Uh, I don't know how I will sit, But anyway, do it. It sounds good. Everyone loves the sound of the subscribe. Subscribe to Toby Haddock's Time Travels uh, five-star reviews. And if you just leave a few lines describing what it is you like as well, that lures punters uh, this way in a very crowded marketplace and a marketplace crowded with excellent podcasts. I mentioned the Missing Episodes podcast. I love Hamster with a Blunt Pen Knife. Uh, and recently there's an episode of 42 to Doomsday, which describes a horde of recorded popular culture material that turned up uh, and a lot of it which was then sadly destroyed in australia recently that is brilliantly brilliantly described uh in the discussion uh, on that 42 to doomsday podcast highly highly recommended but um so give them five stars too but give give, give this as 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 well we're all friends together um but yes and any way you can spread Uh, good opinions about these podcasts on social media we have a twitter handle at heydoke podcasts i say we like we're an organization it's it's me i'm looking at we right now and and it's it's my reflection in in a tablet um so (laughs) heydoke podcasts is the twitter handle and i have my own twitter handle which is at heydoke no at toby heydoke where I don't just do podcast-related stuff. I do the odd other bit and bob as well. But if you are specifically interested in the podcasts, at Haydok Podcasts. And I have a Facebook page, uh, Toby Haydok, which is the comedian page that I have. I also have a personal page, but I'm trying to to, um, sort of create a distinction between the two. So all my work stuff, it's still me. Again, I don't have people, but uh, it's the Toby Haydok comedian page that you need to befriend, follow, and all of that business. Thank you very much. Found it really hard to say hashishans, hashishans, hash, hashish, hashishans, because assassins, hashishans. So um, I hope I hope the edit points aren't too obvious. Where I've had about nine goes, I, it's made me, <laughs> it's made me even more impressed with Xenia Merton's mastery uh, of that uh, lyrical monologue that she did. It's a lyrical monologue that's got that's banging on about hashishans, hash- Hashishans, yeah, hashishans. Uh, good job, I haven't been smoking any. That would have been even harder. I, I, I don't smoke any, by the way. I'm, I, yeah, I'm I, the, the, uh, the most drug induced I do is a, is a, is a, is a, is a sugar rust from a bit of dark chocolate, and <laughs> maybe the kick of an Earl Grey tea. God, I'm so rock and roll